everyone. My name is Pastor Scott. So glad to be with you, uh, albeit on 1.5 legs. Uh, today we continue our sermon series on the, on the body of Christ, the Better Body series. We look at the distinctives of healthy body of Christ and how this community for 100 years has sought to live it out. Will you bow your heads and pray with me now? Father God, thank you so much for some moments ahead to listen to your word and to have our, our lives opened up. We pray that you would continue to ask questions of us and how you're the center of our lives, Jesus Christ, the, the church for 100 years seeking to make your name known. Lord, may you encourage us, may you challenge us, may you reveal to us all that you want to teach us this morning. In your great name we pray, amen. There is a waterfall outside of Spokane called Nine Mile Dam. That's a beautiful spot near the college where I attended. It's a spot where I had my first date with my now wife. And when it was time to propose to her in marriage, took her back to the spot, back to Nine Mile Dam. We went down by the, the Spokane River, got down on a knee with a guitar, and sang her a song that I wrote. And then from there, she said yes, which we're still trying to figure out how that all worked, but praise God. And I said, you know, she thought we were going away for a night of camping. And we said, no, I'm actually, we've got a surprise engagement. And so we drove to the airport and we flew to Northern California and we had this engagement party in Napa Valley. It was amazing. It was magical. It was a treasure. It was and I'm a very lucky man. Anyone knows my wife would say, yeah, he's, he's right. Uh, it's amazing, though. In 17 years of marriage, four babies, one baby's funeral, jobs gained, jobs lost, moments of high, moments of low. It's amazing that in, despite having a great marriage, that there was moments where we felt like the, the treasure was slipping away, where the, the magic was lost where the reality hit and, and the, the honeymoon is over. We use that language, right? Because you, you can't stay by the river all the days of your life. You can't stay singing songs with your guitar or else people are just going to look really funny at you when you get on the bus in the morning. Now, there's jobs to be worked. There's diapers to be changed. There, there's things to be overcome, both of great high and great lows. Don't get me wrong. My marriage is doing great. But much like Paul speaks to the church in the letter of 2 Corinthians, we are meant to have a love affair with our Savior. We're meant to have a love affair with Jesus Christ that so enlivens us, that so changes us, that our lives are lived utterly different in the each and the every day. That, that as crazy and as challenging as it is, that it doesn't slip away. That the magic doesn't go away, that, that the treasure's not lost, that there's the renewing of our minds, there's a worship, there's, a, there's an ordering of our priorities with Christ in the middle that, that means that we can keep our eyes on him despite the challenges of the everyday. As people single in the room, you, you don't begrudge me of the fact that we speak of marriage because as you know in the New Testament, oftentimes Paul especially used the analogy of first love. Our worship of Jesus is meant to be like a ring on our finger, the most important love. And in that way, singles of the room actually have a little bit of a leg up on us. And in this way, they don't have to filter their, 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 their first love with an earthly first love. 
For people single in the room, you have, an, you have a direct access to worship with God as your each and every day, number one, that those of us in the room married, it's just frankly more challenging. Those in the room that are married say, you know, I, 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 I hear the words, but much like marriage can't live in that state of bliss, I'm challenged to know how we can live our, our worshipful life of Jesus each and every day as our first love. It's hard to stay there, Scott. It is. Today we continue our Better Body series, and the message is called The Centrality of Christ. And over the next six weeks, it's a seven-week series, we're going to be looking at some of the DNA distinctives of healthy bodies, and specifically of Bethany Community Church. This hundred-year-old church is built on some DNA centralities. What do we stand for? Well, last week, Richard led off with this, was kind of this ethos of grace. And that if you missed it, you can listen online or listen on the app. But the, the, the punchline was this, that we are God's beloved by the grace of God. Richard led off because he said, if there is a distinctive in 100 years, it's been a community where God's grace has been preached. And we're doing this in order, on purpose. Because today, we're talking about the center point of our faith, our, our first love. Jesus Christ. This is how it's meant to be. But when we think back historically, it's hard to stay in such a place, right? We think about organizations that were started with Jesus is the center. And then, well, life just happens and culture happens. And we can't, we can't stay in such a place. Think of the YMCA. It was founded for a place of Bible study and fellowship. And though I'm a huge fan of the YMCA, I feel like perhaps it's missing the center point. Or think about Harvard College. In 1643, the pilgrims gathered together and they said, now that, now that God has protected us and given us a safe haven, we need to establish a college for what? For the training of, uh, of literate ministers. They said, once these ministers leading the whole community are in the dust, who will lead us? And so they started, a, a Mr. Harvard donated land and, and finances. They planted it at Cambridge for one reason, for Harvard to exist, to train ministers. And though there's, there's still a, a seminary there, we've lost the center. Okay, so it's easy to criticize organizations or, or, or colleges that are just educating minds and let go of hearts. But this happens in the church. It happens all the time. In denominations and in community churches, it happens all the time. In 1930, Dietrich Bonhoeffer came to the United States to teach at Union Theological Seminary. And he said this about the American church. He says, in New York City, they preach about virtually everything. Only one thing's not addressed, says Bonhoeffer, or is addressed so rarely, I've yet unable to hear it. Namely, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cross, sin, and forgiveness, death, and life. And in its place, the church is a gathering for believers in Christ. There stands the church as a social corporation. In other words, it's entirely possible to use the language of Jesus as our center point and lose the practical reality of us living as his people. All right, you got to forgive me because I haven't preached in two weeks. And I'm a little grumpy this morning because of my foot. But I want to make sure... That for the next hundred years, that we as a church don't lose our way. That we don't lose our DNA distinctive. That we don't lose our center point as Christ. As our first love. And as a practical reality. It's absolutely the most important thing that we need to talk about 
this morning. You ask Christians, what's the center point of your faith? And every kid that sat through Sunday school, they know this one, right? What's the answer to every question? Ah, I know, I know. Jesus. Today, it's the right answer. What's the answer to the question? Jesus. What's the answer to the question? It's Jesus. Jesus. You get the point. The answer to the question. But is the church asking the right questions? The answer to our life is Jesus. How do we live in a space to reflect that? How do we live in a space that that continues to be the aroma that we're putting off? Next week, I'll be preaching about the DNA distinctive of, in essentials, unity. The center point of our faith is Jesus Christ. But how do we stay there? How do we live with that as our reality? In 2 Corinthians 11 that Peter read to us, the warning to Eve is meant to be a warning to the church. Don't be led astray. And so this morning... The encouragement and the emphasis is, is that Bethany has always been this, this place of a simplicity and a purity of devotion to Christ. And we need to be able to say as his people, because Christ lives in me, I never walk alone. You spend any time walking around my leader, Richard, and he, he, just, he, he, he just he exudes this. And he'll say this when he travels through airports. He'll say, aren't you lonely? And he's not. Why? Because he lives by this mantra. Because Christ is in me, I'm never alone. And some say, well, I want that. I want to I get like that. And that's this morning what we're going to be looking at. Our big idea this morning is Jesus is our center. That, that we're going to understand how and why we can place Jesus in the middle of our center points. And that we unpack three key relationships with Christ. Christ is our king. Christ is our friend. Christ is our first love. As we understand scripturally the call to make Christ our king and our friend, our first love. That hopefully this message will mean something to you and your walk with Christ. This morning is our goal. Let's begin here at the first point that Christ is our king. There's a first point in our outline. This is the, the reason that Christ is the center point of our theology here at Bethany Community Church. This comes from Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so, Paul would say to the church in Colossus, the more you center your life and your, and your teachings on Jesus, as we look at Jesus, we get a picture of the whole cosmos. He is, he is first love. He is the, the visible of the invisible God. And it's similar later in, in chapter 2, where, where Paul says about Jesus that all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden where? They're hidden in Christ himself. And so at its foundation, Christ isn't leading us into be more religious or more holy or more habits of perfection, or more able to serve, or even more able to love. At the beginning of anything we do is the reality that our center point is about Christ as king. For when we look at Christ, we see God. And so if we want to see God, if we want to be like God, we need to see Christ. I know that's simple, 
But there's a power that comes throughout the New Testament. Listen to Revelation 19. His robe and on his thigh he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's powerful. Jesus is King. He's called King over 600 times in the New Testament. He's called Lord over 600 times. Because in that day and age, people understood if, if Jesus was our Lord, it meant that he had power over me. He has authority over me. He has dominion over me. I serve him. I don't just want to believe him. I don't just want to know his name. I don't just want to read his book. I want him to be my king. Because if he's my king, my life will have existence. it will have purpose and have passion living in that kingdom. That's the kind of kingdom I want to live in. One where Jesus is, is king. In Acts 2, you know, Jesus is now ascended into the heavens. And Peter, who has taken this walk of friendship, we're going to look at him next. He gets up to preach to the, the city of Jerusalem. And he says, you know, you've missed it. You saw the man, you missed the king. And so he, he stands up and he says in Acts 2.36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In Acts 2, the people say, people say, what shall we do? What shall we do? It's just simple. Repent, be baptized, and follow him. Make him your king. Those words can be underlined. They can be circled. You're in a place this morning where you're feeling like Jesus is far from you. You want Jesus to be restored as your king. You're not sure he's been worshiping. You can, you can ask these questions. Jesus, what should we do? We put him back into the place of kingship in our lives. And some need to be baptized. We'll have a baptism here the first week of February. For some, been sitting on the sidelines. When you're ready to declare for the people assembled with you, yeah, he's my king. It's time to be baptized. Sometimes we wait. We're like waiting for the perfect time to be baptized or the perfect church or the, the perfect time where you're just living into the whole fullness of the gospel story. And it's, it's missing the point that Jesus is king. As soon as you're ready to step out and say, I need a king, then you're ready to be baptized. So in, in Acts 2, the people say this, and 3,000 people believed in a day. So in other words, we're not supposed to just believe. We're supposed to call him our Lord. We're supposed to step into his kingdom. And that's why Jesus over and over and over again talks about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God, if you understood yourself, the kingdom of God has arrived, you'd say, but we need a king. And so if I understand that Jesus is my king, I can step into the reality that I live in his kingdom. We see the brokenness and, and the disruption of our lives today. We say, it doesn't feel like your kingdom yet, Jesus. And he's all right with living with that tension, as long as you're calling upon him as your king. We live in the already not yet, where, where Christ has come and established his lordship, and he'll come again. And we, we wait. And as we wait, we worship. As we worship, we install him as the king of our lives. Leslie Newbegin says about this, he says, In announcing the kingdom of God, that was nothing new as it happened every week in the temple. But what is new is Jesus. The people of Israel would say, but, but where is it? We don't see it. They were expecting a different king, a different kingdom with more affluence and less Roman soldiers and less pain. They thought that if a new king came, it meant that everything would be easier in their life. They were missing it. 
And Jesus would say, you don't see it because you're looking the wrong way. You're expecting something different. Turn around, repent, and come with me is what Jesus says. Believe me and come with me and you'll discover what the kingdom of God is. Because the truth is that Jesus himself is the presence of the kingdom. The kingdom is not a new political regime. It's not a program or an ideology. It's not a philosophy. It's the person of Christ. And so to know what God's kingly rule is, Newbegin writes, one must believe in Jesus and come with him. And this is why habits of spiritual formation in our journey with Christ are so, so important. Because we, if we're going to be followers of a new king, we need to be daily reminding ourselves of his lordship. And so when we open our Bibles, when, when we, we spend time in prayer, we're not trying to earn a place at the table. We're not saying, through my goodness, God will love me. That's not, that's not how it works. We say daily, I need to be reminded who my king is. Every year we give out uh, gifts to the staff, we give out gifts to the family, and, and that's why this year I gave out a candle and a mason jar and a lighter so that every morning I light this candle and before I open up email and let the world dictate its, its philosophy to me, often hopefully before I open up Facebook or Seattle Times or before anyone else can mold me, I want to spend time with my king. And so we light the candle and we open the word. And we pray. And there's moments of, of amazing intimacy and other days of just quietness and confusion. And still we show up hoping to be formed by the king. Hoping to say, I want my life to be ruled by you, Jesus. I want life like that. And I've shared before, I'll share it again. When I, when I accepted Christ uh, at the beginning of my senior year of high school, I went to a Young Life camp. The gospel was preached for the first time in a couple of years of really searching him. was the first time I just said, Jesus, be my king. I don't want you plus the right college, plus the right out, output of my life, plus, plus this, plus this. Uh, my life has finally gotten to a place of loneliness so deep that I need you as my king. And I stood by the sign outside the camp and I knew... Because I had a king now, my life would need to be lived differently. The way I treated women, the way I, I spent time on the weekends, the way I talked in the locker room, my friendships. And friends, it wasn't a perfect new beginning. It never is. But standing by that sign was, was a declaration that I wanted to be a follower of a new king. I wanted to live into a new type of kingdom where my own life got a little bit smaller and his got a little bit bigger it's the call in verse 18 of colossians 1 i read 15 through 17 in colossians 1 18 uh, paul writes so that he himself jesus will come to have first place in everything is jesus your king is he in your first place position does he get to speak into your life the most do you spend time with him these are questions for you this morning not indictments is he your king? Is he your first place? It's the first relationship we look at so that we understand if we're going to keep Christ our center, he's got to be our king. The second piece that scripture teaches over and over again is that Christ is our friend. This comes from John 15, from Jesus himself. Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus says this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. We become friends 
with God himself. And we've heard that enough, and that's been so watered down that we can just kind of let that kind of go in one ear and out the other. It doesn't, doesn't mean a whole lot. But in the first century, to say that you were friends with God, God who lives in a temple, who when people looked at him at times would die in the, in the inappropriate way, that, that God was to be feared. And this new king is talking about friendship? I thought worship was born in fear and in sacrifice and obedience. And God writes a new story in the presence of Christ. I don't want just your worship. I don't want your religion. I don't want, I don't want your, your piety. I want your friendship. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to be in a continuing modeling of relationship. And so Christ models this. You think of the, the study of Peter. I love Peter. Because much like myself, Peter's wired for action. Peter's wired to go and do things. Peter thought he knew what God was doing. And so you look at the whole gamut of Peter from his call and towards the moments of faithfulness to the moments of his stupidity to the moments of his abandonment of Christ to the point where Christ makes breakfast for him and says, Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. So we've got a friend that can use us even in our inadequacies, even in our failures. I need that because I'm not a very good friend sometimes. And I'm certainly not always the best Christ follower. But the good news of the gospel message is that we've been given a relationship with Christ. And we respond to revelation. We respond to relationship. 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. So all of life in the life of a Christ follower is response to revelation. So if I'm not doing it very well, then we just need more revelation. You don't need to just feel guilty about not doing it very well. I need to see Christ in order to live my life in response to that. If we're going to have a real relationship with Jesus, it's, it's born out of friendship. Because more times than not, friends, for people in this room, I, I, if I took a survey, I, I, would, I would imagine that most of you would say the same. It wasn't theology or it wasn't just somebody explaining the A's to Z of faith to transform you. It was relationship. It was a Sunday school teacher that loved you unconditionally and they, you saw little moments of grace. It was a parent that despite the hardships they faced, they had this uh, uh, unfiltered view of Christ or a grandparent or somebody in your college dorm room. I, you fill in the blank in your own story. Oftentimes it's relationship that we respond to. We see Christ as friend and someone around us and we say, I, I want a life like that. That's what people hunger for. They recognize there's something missing in their lives and they find unity in Christ. Augustine said this, you've made us for yourself, O God, and we are restless until we find our place in you. Because like Pascal said, that every one of us knows that we have this God-shaped hole inside of us. But until we find our place in God, we have an emptiness that we try to stuff with all sorts of other influences. Pastor Richard this week as we studied, he said, growing up an orphan, he knew this all too well. He was in social situations, but he always felt alone. That was much of my own story too. I was a guy that was trying to, to look like I had no needs. So I'd try out for the teams or the school government or you know, try to date the right person, whatever. But all through high school, at my core, if you could strip down the cars that I drove, the clothes that I wore, this kid with suburban angst was very, very lonely. He just wanted to know his life had purpose, this kid named Scott. And then somebody just 
stepped into the room that had a clear view of Jesus and made a friendship through ministry of young life. And in my relationship, I said, I want a friend like that too. It's relationship that transforms us. And we're like, all right, well, that's, that's great news. Jesus is, Jesus is our buddy. Jesus is our friend. You've seen the bumper sticker. Jesus is my homeboy. Listen to country music right now. We love Jesus and whiskey and lots of women. It's actually a perversion of the gospel message. And I like country music. You get the point. The real friendship has accountability in it too, doesn't it? It does. I mean, this is what, what, what the book of 1 John says, that if we say we have fellowship, if we say we have friendship with Jesus, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. If we walk in light, we have fellowship with one another. So we just can pause there. So friendship, synonym, fellowship. If we say we have friendship with Jesus, but we sin, we lie. But if we have friendship with Jesus, then we have, we have relationship with one another. Again, this is setting the table for next week, talking about unity and what kind of is the center point of our Christian faith. But relationship becomes an understanding of our theology. Relationship becomes, becomes a, a waypoint for us where when we know Christ, we have healthy relationships. Continuing on in 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and truth is not in us. So confess our sins. He is faithful and righteous to forgive. He is faithful and he's righteous to forgive because friendship does not equal phoniness. And we need to be friends with Jesus, real friends in relationship with him, not dogma, but a transparency of, to because something that I know my life has lived in response. But we sin, we all sin. And so often we make the mistake that, that this friend of mine, Jesus, doesn't want to see that side of me. Doesn't want to know that part of me that's sinned. And so we start to erect barriers and we distance ourselves. And pretty soon we don't have friendship at all. We have religion. We have showing up with our, with our bodies but not our whole hearts. Well, the kind of friendship that Jesus calls us to is one that can take a man like Peter who, who, who abandons him and, and weeks later say, I will build my church on you. It doesn't have to be perfect as Jesus as our king, as Jesus as our friend, say in the midst of all our failures, we can continue to worship him. Real friendship that means we never walk alone and we never get it right. And so when we fail Christ, we confess to him and our markers with him in relationship and relationship with one another really, really matter. And we never have to walk alone. The author and theologian J.I. Packer, 89, over Christmas break, some of you saw this article came out this week, that, that he's become blind. He can no longer read. He can no longer write. His, his formal ministry is over. He, he has a condition called macular degeneration, which is an incurable eye disease that causes the loss of vision. Packer, who wrote over 300 books and articles and, and forewords, what would that look like if everything where you drew your earthly reputation was to be lost? And Packer says this, God knows what he's doing. See, rather than fear or, or being paralyzed by self-analysis, the Packer uh, has confidence that, as a quote, this comes as a clear indication from headquarters, and I take it from him. And so then this article in Christianity Today, the, the interviewer is saying, you know, so if this is one of your, your last chances to address the church... 
What's your, what's your message for the church? What would be your final words to the church? And Packer says this. I think it can boil down to four words. Glorify Christ every way. If Christ is our friend, we never walk alone. And we never get it right all the time. But each and every day, we're anchoring ourselves in the story that we want to glorify Christ. In our awesome successes and our horrible failures, we want to glorify Christ. In our singleness in our marriage, in our parenting, and in our, in our, in our raising up of our, of our kids, and our caring for our senior parents, in the each and the every day, you're 17 or 77, all of us united under one rubric this morning, glorify Christ in this friendship with us. And finally, the, the message from Scripture that Christ really needs to be our first love. Our first love. In 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 3, in the NASB this time, Paul writes the church at Corinth, I promise you to one husband, to Christ, that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. See, falling out of love with Christ is as bad as having a second fall. When we lose our center point and we become something other than the place that centers on Jesus more than anything else, we become a social organization. Oh, we're real proud of what we've done at One Cup Coffee. Doesn't matter compared to the center point that Christ is our first love. Oh, you know what? You know, you want to talk about healthy churches? This church was, you know, one facility and now it's six. It was, you know, 50 people 100 years ago in Ballard. Now it's 5,000. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The message is about Christ. Not about who communicates. Not about facilities. Not about missional initiatives. The center point is Jesus. A hundred years. It's been the legacy. Uh, hopefully in a hundred years more we can say the same. That our eyes would testify that what makes us great is Christ alone. And Paul was talking to a church in Corinth that had started even then... Some decades after Christ's crucifixion, it was even then starting to kind of water down the gospel. New teachers were coming to Corinth and taking out the message of Christ crucified. They wanted just the ethos of Christ. They weren't talking about the, the, the death on the cross and the bloodshed for us. And Christ's resurrection, his ascension, they, they were stripping it out. They said, no, just focus on the good. And Paul's saying, you, you run the risk of drifting away. You run the risk of humanism. And we want to be kind, we want to be loving, we want to be relational with the world around us, but we want to be anchored as a church on the center point of our faith that the Christ came to be worshipped as, as king and befriended as friend and loved like our first love. Christ doesn't want to be added onto our plate of already full things. He wants in the each and the every day, the men and women that call themselves followers of him, he wants to be first love. He's a jealous God in that way. He wants to be number one in our lives. And in that way, we have the opportunity to each and every day to step into a life of first loveness. And so people in the room this morning, it's like, you know, this, this is kind of really good news. I come into the new year, I'm really lonely, I'm really, I'm really anxious, I'm really disrupted. I, you know, I, I need a king, I need a friend, I need a first love. It's good news. You have the opportunity in your worship of Jesus Christ to truly have these things. The promise of scripture. 
Quite often the difficulty though isn't a bunch of people that have a hunger. It's very few people that are hungry at all. Because we don't always need Jesus every day. I mean, there's buses to catch and jobs to be done and, and the kids and, and my dating life and my parents and the bank account and, and you know, these competing urgent requests every day are just kind of hammering away from us. And, and how do we maintain this dependency on Christ alone? How do we live into the reality of him as our first love? It's powerful. It's necessary. In 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18, Paul writes, Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. Unveiled faces with ever-increasing glory. It's clearly a reference to Moses and, and on the mountain, his interaction with Christ. There's also some biblical illusion happening here around marriage. Because in marriage, for first century people, the veil would be dropped and men and women would see themselves in an intimate way. First, loveness, arranged by parents, but the, 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 the built on the ethos that these two would never be without each other. First, love. It's what... Christ is calling us to with the barricades down and showing up in the each and the every day and saying, God, I want you to be my first love. I want you to awaken in me a hunger, awaken in me a spirit. And, and the freedom there, friends, is when we don't feel it, that's okay. Because much like a, and you talk to any married people in the room, like, ah, oh, 17 years or 27 or 7 or 3 or 5, they will talk about seasons and seasonality. And the fact that different whole seasons of your, of your marriage, things are just different and you grow together and morph together. How is our relationship with Christ not any more the same? He's our first love and yeah, it looks different than 16. We said yes at Bible camp or 22 in the dorm room or 30 on the playground next to the other one. I mean, it's different, but he's still called to be our first love. Wooing us, exciting us, encouraging us, challenging us. That our lives are changed by the truth of who we worship. This is the, the truth of true love. It's not a fad or a feeling or a passing emotion. It's much more than this. It's a, it's a treasured relationship. The most important thing to me. Beyond who I live with, beyond what I do, I belong to a king who is my friend, who I hope is my, is my first love. And each and every day we step into that. One of the main anchor verses of Bethany Community Church, for sure in the last 25 years, uh, influenced by Pastor Richard, comes from Colossians 1. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentile the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory, Christ in us. The center point of our faith is Jesus and that means we've been given this great gift to step in and, and to be in the each and the every day, reordering our lives around his kingdom, around his friendship, around his love, that, that we're responding to this ever-changing love relationship, that we might be people who love Jesus first and foremost. What if that was how we were known as a community? Ah, they, a Bethany North, they love Jesus. 
more than the stuff they do, more than the times of church they show up, more than the 10 a.m. start games for Seahawks or any other distractions in their life. They love Jesus. And then the world looked different because they did. That reordering our marriages and our homes and the way we date and the way we work, the way we live, our first love with Jesus. For to know God is to know Christ. It's the way he created us. So when we look at Christ, we don't have to do anything else. We don't have to be holy. We don't have to try harder. We don't have to be religious. We just need to. In this way, it's very encouraging. This has been Bethany's mantra for 100 years. Just see Jesus. Would you do that with me? I just want to I just want to see Jesus. Yeah, but what are we going to do next week, next month, next year? I just want to I just want to see Jesus. And I know there'll be decisions to be made, but if I'm if I'm seeing Jesus as your leader, my hope is that you would see Jesus in your life. But our marriage is struggling. But what if you just see Jesus? But, you know, how do, how do you raise a three-year-old? This is maddening. You just, what if you just see Jesus? I'm really tired of being single. I know, but what if you just see Jesus and then things flow from there? But what are we going to do? What if, what if we just see Jesus as our treasure and our lives flowed as response to that? There's this poem I read uh, this week. I read it to my staff and I cried. I've read it daily because I want to I see Jesus. Not because I'm a pastor, not because I'm a leader, not because I'm a husband. No, because I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to see him. And this poet, Anthony Abbott, a believer, writes a poem called Treasure Hunt, taken off Matthew 13, 44. And Matthew 13, 44 says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all he has to buy the field. That's what... Christ is our king and our friend, our first love looks like. This simple little two-line parable. He sells everything because he's seen Jesus. And so this poem is called Treasure Hunt. Will you listen to me? Listen to it as I read it over you. I've been thinking of this since Thursday, writes the poet. The field with the treasure in it and what it looked like. Trying to picture the guy walking along the road beside an ordinary field with flowers. He doesn't even know the name of a guy like you or me. He is not trying to find treasure He's just walking and admiring the beauty of the day. Late September, the morning air crisps like fresh lettuce, and he sees it by mistake even. He rubs his eyes because, well, because he's never seen anything like it before. And his first thought is he's either blind or he's crazy. It's like find the hidden object in the picture. You look and you look and you look and you never see it. And then one day, dum da dum, you're walking along and boom, there it is. And you're in big trouble because now your whole life has changed. Oh no, you think, I can't do this. I'm just an ordinary guy. I don't need this. I know what happens to those people that win the lottery. Who wants a million? It's nothing but stress and taxes. So he goes home, this guy. And he carries on as if he's just the same. But he isn't. And he never will be again. And that's the joy and the pain too. Because after that, the things the world wants, the suits and cars and even trout stuffed with crab meat, they aren't ever quite the same either. So he keeps sneaking back to catch a glimpse of the treasure. Which he's covered up, of course, in case some other guy should come along and spot it. Which must be a mistake, since God says the treasure is for everyone. And every time he catches a glimpse, his heart goes bonkers. It's so beautiful, it freaks him out. Makes him want to laugh and cry and scream at the same time, like Mozart's Requiem sung right. But he knows if he takes it, he'll have to give up everything. And that's tough, because he's got a house on the lake and a Honda Accord. And he really does like trout, despite what I said and everything. 
And then one day he goes back, and the treasure, well, I bet you didn't expect this, the treasure is gone. And his heart sinks all the way down below the knees. Stuff happens. Sure it does, but you can't blame this one on God. It was there. You could have taken it, but you didn't. And now he knows it was the treasure made the house, the car, the trout worthwhile. Without the treasure, who cares? Without the treasure, where's the joy? It's the treasure brings the joy. But we were so dumb, we don't know it until it's gone. The man in the parable, he was much smarter than we are. He was onto something very, very big. Paul writes his final letter, which is 2 Timothy, his final thing he has to say to his people. He says this in 2 Timothy 1. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Guard through your Holy Spirit who dwells in you the treasure which has been entrusted in you. The treasure. It means you have a king. You have a friend and a first love which is meant to be treasure. In the each and the every day. Will you pray with me now? Father God, thank you so much for being our king and our friend and our first love. And we pray that we be your people who see you. We pray that we be your people who know you through seeing you. That we be people who know your words written and, and know the language of your prayers because we see you. And because we've seen you, because like treasure in a field, we've experienced you, that you would give us this taste of the divine Jesus. You would give us a taste of this future life. You would give us a taste of power beyond the ordinary. Would you be our King Jesus that envelops our, itself into a friendship with us, relationship that transforms my earthly relationships. Jesus, put the ring on our fingers this morning. Make us your first love. Allow us to be your lovers back. And we pray for people in the room this morning, Lord, with kind of hard hearts and, and callousness. And maybe the prayer is like Mark, Mark 9, that, that we believe, that we pray for us in our disbelief. And for others, we've been following you for quite a while. Jesus, just thank you for the reminder this morning from Scripture that you long to be alive in us still. That though it's different than the past, it's, it's always different. It's meant to be new and beautiful and lovely again. It's meant to be treasure. So Jesus, this morning, as your people, be our treasure. Amen.